You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Oh no, here comes that young man in again today with the perineal pain and the voiding symptoms. He's not responded to antibiotics and sitz baths. What am I going to do with him today? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host. And with me today is Dr. Jeanette Potts from the Glickman Neurological Institute at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Potts. Thank you for having me. We are delighted to have you. And this scenario that I kind of opened our segment with is one that is fairly common. Tell us about these people who come in and uh, have perineal symptoms and they don't get better with antibiotics. Well, in these men, it is very important to take a thorough history and really convey to the patient that you're engaged in their symptomology and in their healing. What many patients have shared with me is that when their urine cultures come back negative and the antibiotics did not help them, they get the impression that their doctor does not believe that they have a real illness or that they have real symptoms. Many times it helps to spend the extra two to three minutes to allow the patient to explain their history. And I find it very helpful to ask them what they believe was the precipitant and Many times patients will give a history, albeit uh, not medical, but one that can make some sense into how the symptoms could have developed and how maybe there would be a, a musculoskeletal or a neuromuscular ideology to their symptoms. That's certainly, uh, we're, we're told all the time, if we listen to our patients, they'll tell us the diagnosis. We just have to listen well. Well, you know, when I lecture about this, I've often used a slide of a wooden cylindrical object, and I asked the audience to guess what it is, and it's actually the first stethoscope that was mm. made. And the reason the stethoscope was made that way was because the physician used to put his or her ear up against the patient's chest to hear the heart, and in order to distance themselves from the patient, they created this instrument. Hmm. So I always think of, you know, the symbol of our practice, you know, with the stethoscope is actually one of the first steps that was taken to have technology separate us from our patients. And I think it's important to remember that one of the most important tools in our acumen is our ears and our sensibility. So that's very important. And I also ask patients about other symptoms um, such as bowel functioning and their bowel habits. This is another pet peeve of mine is that, you know, if a pediatric gastroenterologist was seeing a child, they would focus a lot on the child's urinary symptoms as well. And if a pediatric urologist was seeing a child, they would also be very engaged in their gastrointestinal functioning. Somehow after 18, we forget that these two things still go together and can influence each other. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to find out that, you know, some of these symptoms were uh, predated by, you know, a hemorrhoidal surgery or constipation or, you know, dysfunctional bowel problems. Some people have childhood histories of these difficulties and they may manifest with stress. So in, in these patients who have these perineal difficult to pin down symptoms, definitely look at the GI tract as a possible source. Yes, yeah, some of them have uh, constipation, impaction. Some of them have very poor bowel habits. You know, they're either forcing themselves. And I learned this from a colorectal surgeon, too. You never ask someone, well, do you have a bowel movement every day? Because that, they may say yes, but they may really be <laughs> straining to do it just mm -hmm. to make sure they have it every day. So these are things that I think also give us information, but also reinforce that bond with the patient of our, of our interest. 
I've also found it very interesting that many of my patients with prostatitis or the label of prostatitis meet the criteria for other functional somatic syndromes. And functional somatic syndromes, as we all know, you know, include things such as fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, TMJ syndrome, globus syndrome, hyperventilation syndrome. You know, the lifetime prevalence in the general population is somewhere between 1% and 8%. It's that low. But I found that among my patients, 65% or more met the criteria for these other syndromes. I think it's important to notice that if you have a patient with this kind of a profile and they have negative cultures and you've done a very thorough evaluation, it may be important to remind them of this interconnection and how you know, they may have a susceptibility to these types of syndromes which require a multidisciplinary approach, which I think is, you know, the best place for the patient is in primary care. They need an exercise regimen. They need psychotherapy and support. Many of these patients respond to aerobic exercise, which, you know, elevates the catecholamine levels in the same way that tricyclic antidepressants had in the past. Some of them uh, respond to low-dose antidepressants of, of other types. But again, I, I think a lot of the people benefit just from the empathy and they benefit from knowing that these things truly have biochemical evidence uh, for their existence mm-hmm. and that they're no longer, you know, somaticized. They're not just considered somaticizers. And I, I think, too, when you use the term functional somatic syndrome, it has to be used with caution because we may all latch on to that somatiform or that somaticizing portion of the phrase. But what it really means is that this person has a, a vulnerability, which may may really be a mind, body, and biochemical connection. So it is a valid physical as well as psychological problem, and the importance of the close understanding relationship between the patient and physician is is key in this kind of nebulous area of chronic abacterial pelvic pain or, or perineal pain. Yes, and I think it's very important to take a, an occupational history, a recreational sport history, Oftentimes, I see patients on either side of the spectrum, that being the couch potato or the super jock, or I have the patient who does a great deal of sitting, airline pilots, computer technicians, persons who, you know, who sit a lot driving, and on the other side, patients who are maybe doing sedentary work, but then working out very aggressively, doing exercises improperly with weights that are too high for them. And they may have strong muscles, but they don't have lengthened muscles. And then that's where we get into myofascial pain syndromes and performing specialized myofascial trigger point release in the pelvic area and in the genital floor or the pelvic floor muscles. Uh, It's important to also assess the back. And some patients have had orthopedic injuries, and those can actually affect their pelvic floor functioning as well. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jeanette Potts from the Glickman Urological Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and we are discussing this difficult disorder, NIH classification 3, if you will, chronic abacterial prostatitis or chronic pelvic pain syndrome in men. Dr. Potts, when someone comes in and I'm not really suspecting that this is bacterial, they don't have a fever, the urine is clear, but they have this perineal discomfort, is it ever appropriate to give them an empiric trial of uh, two to four weeks of quinolone? In those cases, I would think erring on the side of a lower number, you know, two weeks. It, It has also been written that, you know, patients can receive a two-week course of antibiotics and then be reassessed. And I would submit just the opposite, even though I'm trying to be very respectful of how difficult it is for all of us in a busy practice to bring patients back under such circumstances. 
But I think that if a patient is afebrile and has a negative urine and you reassure that patient and repeat the culture again or repeat a urinalysis in a week, that patient may be much better by that time. In fact, I would almost bet on that. And I would rather see patients taking less antibiotics and being under surveillance than using the antibiotic empirically. However, as I said in the beginning of the show, I don't think it is bad or inappropriate if a patient receives one course empirically because sometimes it's just not practical for the patient to come back either. Because I do see, uh, even sometimes when I refer someone out to a urologist, I, they may come back with, a pers- even though it doesn't appear to be bacterial, with a prescription for an antibiotic. This is very sad, and this is true of urologists all over the world. There have been you know, research studies looking at how physicians address this problem. Uh, there was a a very sobering survey that was published a few years ago by uh, McNaughton and colleagues in which they surveyed physicians about the frequency in which they would employ the localization culture test, you know, that glass test I just talked about, VB1, VB2, VB3. Almost none of the physicians or most of the physicians would not do that test. However, when those same physicians were surveyed about antibiotic uh, usage, it was um, rated as almost always or very frequently. So I find it very ironic that the very people who would not conduct the specialized culturing tests would be the people most apt to just prescribe antibiotics. And so this is a problem in the urological community as well. So when these patients who do have what appears to be a non-infectious cause for this pelvic pain, we want to think about gastrointestinal causes and we want to think about back issues, pelvic floor dysfunction, look at occupational uh, issues. And then could you repeat again the other disorders that often seem to coincide with this chronic pelvic pain? The functional somatic syndromes um, will coincide. Many patients will have bowel difficulties either in the way of irritable bowel syndrome or they can have levator anti-syndrome, you know, and defecatory issues. Some patients have uh, chronic fatigue type syndrome symptoms and fibromyalgia. So we want to be on the lookout for uh, those type of disorders in in this group of patients as well. Yes. And it does seem strange in a way, you know, when you're thinking about irritable bowel and functional, uh, I mean, fibromyalgia, uh, one immediately thinks more of the female patient. But keep in mind that this affects both genders. And I feel that many times there are certain diagnoses that uh, may seem sexist in nature, but I would propose the opposite, that perhaps our male patients are neglected because we don't consider these other types of ailments in them as much, and therefore they're not getting the care that they need, you know, like for things including depression. And I imagine the best uh, approach to this is one that employs various types of therapies, not just the medication. This is true, and I think that it's important to network with psychotherapists who are sensitive to this issue and physiotherapists. I think the biggest challenge in the physiotherapy realm is to find therapists who are comfortable in the genital area and with the pelvic floor. And what I've done when uh, my patients are from far away and we're trying to find follow-up physical therapy, if we don't have someone who specializes in male pelvic floor or Category 3 prostatitis, we will scout the gynecological community and find, you know, very good female pelvic floor therapists 
And those who are comfortable working with men are outstanding therapists for this type of treatment. Very interesting. And we should look for physical therapists who have expertise in working in the pelvic floor with men or women. Is that correct? Yes, yes, because sometimes it is hard to find people who um, who are already doing this with men, but gynecology, I think, has been you know way ahead of the game in, in treating women with pelvic floor dysfunction and using the, the expertise of the physical therapist. And I would love to make a plug for the physical therapist. They're, they're amazing. They're very sensitive with their fingers, and they do literally heal people by touching them. Well, I want to thank Dr. Jeanette Potts, who has been our guest as we've been discussing the approach to and diagnosis of chronic abacterial prostatitis or chronic pelvic pain syndrome, a very uh, challenging yet common syndrome that we see in general practice. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.